Let's do this thing. On July 21st, 1969, only 21 layers of fabric, most gossamer thin, stood between the skin of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and the lethal desolation of a lunar vacuum. The story of the Apollo spacesuit is the surprising tale of an unexpected victory, that of Playtex, maker of bras and girdles, over the large military-industrial contractors better positioned to secure the spacesuit contract. Hannah, that was so interesting. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I thought it was super fascinating. For this episode, which you can probably interpret, we're going to be talking all about spacesuits. We are. For the research of this episode, I was reading the book Spacesuit, Fashioning Apollo by Nicolas de Monchat, and I saw that excerpt and I was like, oh, this will be a fun way to open up our episode. Yeah, that was perfect. And I really like how it ties into the fact that they chose Playtex, which most commonly I think of makes bras. Yes. And they also make, I think, feminine hygiene products. Exactly. It was a pivotal part in our history because at that point, the concept of going to space was very related to the military. Oh, yeah. And when you think about the military, you think about armor, you think about really intense hardware. And I really enjoyed reading about this part in our history where a very traditionally feminine company won these spacesuit contracts because of the flexible materials they could provide over these military contractors. So I thought that was really cool. It is neat. I also think it just brings up how innovative bras are. Yes. They're made with some really high-tech fabric to make them cool. Yes. Not cool as in, like, cool, but cool as in thermally not hot. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know how else to say that. (laughs) To keep them cool and from smelling terrible. Comfortable. Comfortable. Exactly. They do some pretty high tech stuff, which isn't something I thought about until you read that excerpt. Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt too. Just like you said, Anna, bras need to be comfortable and cool and flexible. And those are the things that we needed in a spacesuit. Exactly. Can't underestimate the power of women's clothing manufacturers. No, you cannot. (laughs) I'm so excited you're back. Thanks, Anna. We missed you. I missed you too. I am really excited to be back. For those of you who don't know, I took a bit of a pause after the first 10 episodes because I was put on a new project and I needed to put in a lot of extra time into that. I'm really, really excited to be back for season two. Yes, we're going to call this season two. And I'm very excited because to start off season two, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do our very first two-part episode. Woo! Woo! While we were doing our notes for spacesuits, Hannah had a lot. I had a lot. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this as it goes. And it was just good stuff we didn't want to cut. So we thought it would be cool to give you all the info that you could ever desire. And we'll do a two-part episode. Seems like the perfect way to start off the new season. Exactly. And then to really just keep things crazy, if you will, we're going to do part one and part two released one week apart. A week from when you're listening to this will be part two, and then we'll go back to our regular two-week cadence. Yes. You get two weeks in a row worth of But It Is Rocket Science enjoyment. In this episode, we'll focus on what are spacesuits, why do we need them, the history of spacesuits, and then you'll get another episode about examples of spacesuit today and what spacesuit technology is going to look like in the future. I can't wait. I can't wait either. I'm so happy you're back. Thanks, Anna. How have you been? I've been 
good. Quarantining per usual, I discovered this YouTuber, the Fitness Marshal, and he does these really fun dance videos. So I've been trying to do some <laughs> dance workouts at home and he's just super, his personality is just so peppy and excited. That's awesome. Yeah, we should we should video chat sometime and do it together. I think that'd be fun. We should. That sounds awesome. I'm not a very good dancer. Hannah's very good. But I have a positive attitude, and that's what matters. Heck yeah. How about you, Anna? How have you been? Any exciting updates? I'm good. I've been on the baking bread train. I made my own sandwich bread. Oh, yeah. You sent me a picture. It looked beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I used the recipe by... There's a, another YouTube channel I've been watching by this. He's very famous. His name is Binging with Babish. Oh, yeah, I have seen his YouTube channel. I like him because he's very technical, and I'm obviously a very technical person. Sometimes baking things will be like, it feels like this, and I just don't know what that means. <laughs> I totally understand. And he'll do stuff like, it has an internal temperature of the following. And I'm like, thank you. That's what. That's the kind of definite stuff I need in my life. I can read numbers, and I can follow steps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, I'm really excited to hear all about the technical ins and outs of spacesuits. Yes, but before we dive in, we got some feedback from a listener, Espen. Thank you for the kind words. But he also requested that we elaborate on something we talked about in one of our previous episodes, and that was the book Artemis by Andy Weir. Yeah, we both read the book, and we both felt like we could not relate to the dialogue of the female character. That's right. Andy Weir is also known for a very famous book, The Martian. Yes. That lead character is a male. I think his name is Matt Watney? Mark. His name is Mark Watney, but he's played by Matt Damon, which is why very consistently people mess that up. <laughs> his character is portrayed as this intelligent, puzzle-solving man who uses his wits to figure out challenges on the Martian surface. The character in Artemis, I think her name was Jazz. Jazz was portrayed more for her physical attributes. The author had to describe more of how she looked physically, what she could get because of these physical attributes as a way to make the character more appealing. And I wasn't a fan of that. No, I didn't like that either. In his defense, she was also very intelligent and she would solve problems with her wits, if you will. So she was smart, not to say she wasn't. What I didn't care for was the fact that he... I just think it's because in Artemis, a big point was taken that she was attractive. Yeah. And I don't think we knew whether or not Mark Watney was attractive or not, because it was deemed as not important. That's a really good point, Anna. That's such a good point. That that didn't have to be a factor for us to think Mark Watney was a cool character. Yes. And don't get me wrong. If you are a woman or a man out there who liked this book, that's not a bad thing. We're just no. saying what we thought. All right. Now, I'm really excited to hear all about spacesuits. Let's get into it. But first, should we introduce ourselves? Yes, I always forget this part. It is very important. Let's do it. I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is But, but It Is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. Spacesuit is this incredible feat of engineering with a complex history. Think about yourself being in space. You're out there floating around in space with only a few layers to protect you from the complete damage the space environment can wreak on your body. A spacesuit is basically a mini spacecraft. If you didn't have the spacesuit to protect you from the harsh environment of space, you would pass out within 20 seconds. Oof. Yeah, 
It's crazy. If you are just out there floating around, the vacuum of space will try to pull the pressure out of your body. You won't blow up because your skin is really elastic, but the liquids on your body will begin to vaporize. Your eyes would begin to boil. Ew. <laughs> That's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to start with this so you can imagine spacesuits are very important. We really need them to protect our astronauts. An astronaut will typically use a spacesuit to embark on EVA missions. EVA stands for extravehicular activity, basically any sort of activity outside the spacecraft. An example would be an astronaut going to make repairs on the Hubble telescope. For those of you who don't know, the Hubble telescope is this large telescope that has been in space since 1990. The James Webb telescope is supposed to be its replacement. Yes, that's right. Intended to be its replacement is a better word. Yep. An astronaut will don a spacesuit and enter the harsh environment of space with nothing but the suit to protect them. To get more specific about this harsh environment of space, there's several factors that the spacesuit protects the human against. The first being the wild temperature swings of space. In space, the temperature can vary from negative 250 Fahrenheit to positive 250 Fahrenheit or about negative 156 degrees Celsius to 121 degrees Celsius. And it depends on whether the astronaut is on the sun-facing side or not. On Earth, we are lucky enough to have the atmosphere to protect us, and this atmosphere will strip away some of that energy that's radiated from the sun, so it doesn't get that crazy hot on the ground. Yeah, people, global warming is real. <laughs> protect our environment. We need our atmosphere. We definitely need it. Very good point, Anna. Thank you, thank you. Also, going back to space doesn't have an atmosphere, we are talking about a vacuum and astronauts need oxygen to breathe. So that's another thing. We need the spacesuit to provide oxygen. Spoiler alert. Yes, spoiler alert. Also, another factor is in space, you have these really fast moving space dust particles. And these dust particles can go up to 36,000 miles per hour or about 58,000 kilometers per hour. And it can leave quite an impact if you don't have a strong barrier to protect you. And then on top of all of this, the spacesuit needs to be flexible so astronauts can actually move in them, carry out repairs, etc. Now that I've talked about the harsh environment and why we need the spacesuit, let's get into what makes a spacesuit something we can't just buy off the rack at a mall. <laughs> Do people go to malls anymore? <laughs> okay, I used to go to the mall, but I don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about the online shopping now. All right, back to it. Let's get into what makes a spacesuit a spacesuit. The classic NASA spacesuit is called the EMU, the Extravehicular Mobility Unit. It was introduced back in 1981 and is still being used for missions to the ISS along with the Russian Orlin spacesuit. The EMU is a semi-rigid two-part spacesuit. It has a number of different parts, but I'll go ahead and cover the baseline fundamental parts of the spacesuit. The first one, the helmet, Pretty self-explanatory. You need that. You need it. The second part being the extravehicular visor assembly, EVA. It protects the astronauts from really bright sunlight. You also have the in-suit drink bag, IDB. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> it's just like fancy terminology for a water bag for astronauts. Yeah. I'm just picturing those purses with wine in them. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not what this is, but... <laughs> And then you also have the Maximum Absorbency Garment, the MAG, basically a diaper. Yeah, 
some of these EVAs, they're hours and hours long because to get in and out of the spacecraft is a significant amount of work. That's right. So you're not just going to hop back into the ISS and go to the bathroom. Exactly. Then you have the hard upper torso assembly, the HUT, and it's common to the EMU and Russian Orlin spacesuit. It's this rigid piece that protects your upper body, and it has attachment points for where the flexible arm pieces and the lower torso assembly will attach. By common, you mean that it's a similar feature, but I don't think you can swap them. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think you can swap them either. Gotcha. We also have the primary life support system, the PLIS. I like how there's no vowels in that. (laughs) Pulls. Having studied life support systems in grad school, this is my favorite component of the spacesuit. This is what makes the suit a spacecraft in itself. It looks like a super cool jetpack backpack. It is just as supportive and magical as Dora the Explorer's backpack. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that song? Anything that you might need, I've got inside for you. I do not remember the song, but I remember it was, would it talk? I think it talked, right? Yeah, it did. Was his name just Backpack? I think his name was just Backpack. Backpack. Okay. (laughs) All right, I'm going to have to look up the song later. I do not remember it. But just like Dora the Explorer's backpack had everything, the Pliss provides mostly everything for the astronaut. What the PLUS does is that it regulates the suit pressure. It has two oxygen tanks, similar to diving suits, that allows up to eight hours of EVA. When you're working these long EVA missions, there will be carbon dioxide and humidity buildup from exhaling. And then, of course, there may be some naturally stanky smells in the suit. The PLUS is involved in scrubbing all of this. So humans can get actually CO2 poisoning. That's right. Which is... You will get CO2 when you breathe out. So if you just have that building up in the suit, that can be very dangerous. So they actually have to scrub that out. Exactly. I think they're just like fancy filters, but I don't know. Yeah. So they'll typically use this material called lithium hydroxide. And it basically just acts with the CO2. It comes in these little like sheets. And when it reacts, it just becomes like a chalky material. There's multiple methods of scrubbing CO2. Just like Anna said, you can get CO2 poisoning. It'll start with like minor headaches. Then it'll lead to really bad headaches, not being able to get oxygen to your brain and your organs. Just like just being in your one bedroom apartment with the door closed, that's not going to happen to you. But if you're in this suit and there's no way for anything to escape, that's where they have to scrub it. Exactly. Don't get anxious about this. I know I would get anxious (laughs) about this. You don't need to be anxious about this. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the plus is. Going back to the other components of the spacesuit, we also have the liquid cooling and ventilation garment. And it is the pressure garment that cools and recirculates oxygen and it removes any excess body heat from the suit. You also have two-way voice communication to be able to speak with other astronauts and the spacecraft. You also have a display for suit health parameters. I mentioned this earlier, but the lower torso assembly and incorporates basically the body seal closure and it'll connect to the legs and that will connect to the boots. Another important vocabulary term for the EMU is a subset of what I just mentioned. So a subset of the terms of the components that I just listed for the spacesuit is known as the spacesuit assembly, SSA. This includes the boots, the liquid cooling and ventilation garment, the lower torso assembly, arms, gloves. Oh, and then I also didn't mention this, but it also has the thermal micrometeoroid garment that will cover the entire EMU. Just like it sounds, it protects you from just micrometeoroid impact. 
The spacesuit assembly, the SSA, is the subset of the EMU. A fun fact about this is that NASA selected ILC Dover to manufacture the SSA. I'm going back full circle here with the quote that we started the episode with. ILC Dover is most popularly known in the aerospace world for spacesuits and airbag landing mechanisms for the Mars Pathfinder and Mars Exploration rovers. Cool. We talked about airbags a tiny bit in our parachute episode. Not a ton, but they're a pretty cool technology. Yes, pretty cool. ILC began delivering spacesuits for the Apollo program in 1966, but the cool fact that I wanted to get to was that ILC Dover has a parent company, and that parent company is International Latex Corporation, which later was known as Playtex. Neat! And just like we said earlier, it was most notable for women's underwear, pads, and tampons. Back in the 1950s and 1960s when the spacesuits were created, it was most popularly known for bras and girdles. Darn, I'm happy girdles aren't really a thing anymore. Oh, God. Yeah. Actually, I was reading this interesting thing that girdles were actually required by air hostesses back then. Ah. Yeah. Could you imagine? No. Well, yes, but I don't want to. It's like you're spending all these hours on a flight and then you're uncomfortable and restricted in a girdle. And then what was really cool was that at around that time, Coco Chanel came back and was like, I'm going to have a relaunch of my fashion brand. With that relaunch, the air hostess's clothing was upgraded girdles got removed and then they got more professional and fashionable skirts and like pantsuits. I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) Whenever I am on a plane and I see these air hostesses in high-heeled shoes standing for hours on end, I'm like, how? Like, it is incredibly impressive to me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. I get on a plane with like sweatpants and a sweatshirt and my hair and like a messy bun. I couldn't imagine wearing high heels and a professional like business attire for six to eight hours, or even more for international flights. Every day. Every day. Every day. I wear high-heeled shoes like a fancy party, and at the end of the night, I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to throw them all away. <laughs> exactly. Same. <laughs> all right. So where was I? Moving on to another topic, still on spacesuits. Space, the spacesuit has many layers. Actually, we've decided we're just going to do something else now. <laughs> We're going to just talk about air hostesses for the rest. Sorry about that. Like, actually, that would be a cool episode, but it would be good if we did spacesuits still. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that'd be hilarious. Okay, so the spacesuit has many layers. The number of layers has evolved over the years, but it began with 21 layers in the Apollo spacesuits. I'm going to name a few of these layers and just briefly mention their properties. These layers include neoprene-coated nylon, which is this rubbery protection material, also includes Dacron. It has a high resistance to stretching and this high tensile strength. Another material is spandex, which is stretchy, lightweight, soft. It makes up the liquid cooling ventilation garment. Think about your workout spandex pants. Yeah, a lot of that workout material stuff is spandex. Exactly, it's sweat wicking. So it makes sense for it to be used as a liquid cooling ventilation garment material. You also have mylar, which is this light, reflective, high tensile strength material. You can see it used in emergency thermal blankets. Yep. That are handed out to like marathon runners when they complete their marathons. Yeah, you can get like 10 emergency blankets for 99 cents. I think everybody should have them. I think everybody should have one in their car, in their bag. 
They're so small. They are incredibly useful. Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. Anne and I ran this race, the Ragnar once. It was this really long trail race on the top of a mountain. You go all around the clock. You're running at all hours of the day, but it's a relay. Oh yeah. And I remember finishing one of my legs at, I think it was like 10 p.m. And then Anna, you had a late night run too. Yep, you get really cold because you're overexhausted. I actually used one. I bought them and then brought one to when we did a different race in San Diego. Exactly. Like you were prepared the second time around. I wish we thought about this on that first race. Oh, yeah. Because it was so cold. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that, that emergency blanket saved me. Um, it does make a heck of a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. You were just like crinkling in the back of our van in San Diego. <sighs> this is not an exaggeration. You could get like 10 for 99 cents. That's amazing. But once you take it out of its little pouch, you are never getting it back in there. <laughs> Hen and I, we rep emergency blankets. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we're, yeah, we like being warm. <laughs> All right. So where was I? Layers of the spacesuit. The most recent NASA article I found about spacesuits states that we're at about 16 layers now. And this article was from eight months ago in October 2019. That's a lot of layers. That is, Anna. It is a lot of layers. But it kind of goes to show how awful the environment of space is. You really need all these layers to protect the astronaut. Yeah, it's really extreme. There's a lot of layers. So you might be thinking, how heavy are these spacesuits? I found some numbers. The Apollo suits were about 180 pounds, which is about 81 kilograms. And then the shuttle suits that are meant to be used in zero-g are about 310 pounds or 140 kilograms. But these are also designed to last 15 years. Yeah, you're going to go into this, but they're incredibly expensive to make, so they want them to last a long time. Yes, perfect transition, Anna, because I'm about to get into this right now. I'm a pro. Can you see the future? <laughs> I found a really interesting article on Business Insider about the cost of spacesuits. I'll have that linked in the sources. Going back in time, we had 18 spacesuits that were originally manufactured in 1974 for the space shuttle program, and they were estimated to work for about 15 years. And they've been working for a lot longer than that. These suits, developed in 1974, would cost about $15 million to $22 million. And that's the cost back then. Wow. NASA hasn't delivered any EVA suits since then. Over time, most of these suits have retired, or they're in a state of being refurbished, or have been destroyed in accidents, the most recent being in the SpaceX 7's cargo disaster. That was a bummer. A real bummer. NASA has been working hard to develop the next generation of EVA suits for the Artemis program, which is scheduled to take astronauts to the moon in 2024. This new development known as the XEMU has costed NASA so far about a quarter of a billion dollars. I'll get into the juicy technical details of the XEMU later in this episode. That'll actually be in part two of this episode. Now you are probably thinking, why are these spacesuits so pricey? A quarter of a billion dollars is a lot of money. NASA's goal is to take these XEMU spacesuits to Mars along with the lunar surface. The Martian surface is completely different than the environment of the moon, so certain design changes need to be made to accommodate for this new environment. One big environmental difference is the fact that Martian gravity is one-third the gravity of Earth, and lunar gravity is one-sixth the gravity of Earth. So that's a huge difference. Yeah. It would be double, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you need to take into account 
that situation. And you want to be able to make those spacesuits lighter because the astronauts will be supporting, will feel the weight more of the spacesuit on the Martian surface. Significantly so. Mm-hmm. Another reason why these suits are expensive is that we have this goal of getting astronauts to the moon by 2024. And it's an aggressive schedule. And what's happened since these suits were originally created decades ago was the fact that a lot of the manufacturers for some of these sensors, for some of the hardware on the suits, have started either closing down shop or have discontinued that specific hardware or those specific sensors since then. And this is just natural in engineering. When a product isn't used very often or a new generation of that product is going to be developed, companies will just make those older products obsolete and no longer manufacture them. You can even see that with TVs, right? You can't buy the original TV anymore because why would you need that? We have a flat screen. Exactly. That's absolutely right. Even smartphones. Yeah. You see everywhere these nice fancy new phones. It's harder to get a flip phone. (laughs) That's actually a really good example, Anna. Now you can imagine, okay, so these sensors are becoming obsolete. Some of this hardware is becoming obsolete. How does this relate to schedule? Well, in order to save time on schedule, what would be nice is if NASA could find drop-in replacements of those sensors for their new spacesuits. For example, if you're using a CO2 sensor on the original spacesuit, and I want to use the same hardware that surrounds that CO2 sensor in the new spacesuit, it would be really awesome if I could just get the exact same CO2 sensor with the same pinout, the same connections, So all I have to do is just drop it into my new design as opposed to doing a lot of hardware design updates because the more design updates you have to do, the longer it takes for the engineer and the more time it adds to schedule. So in that situation, it's like you would want to push to get those products where you can to save time on schedule. The way I would think about it is, do you remember when the new iPhone came out? This was, I think, probably years ago now, and they got rid of the headphone jack? Yes. That's right. So that meant if you got a new phone, you also needed to get new headphones. Yes, exactly. So NASA's trying to prevent that from happening. That's right. But on a significantly more complex level. Exactly. Than your Apple AirPods. That's right. Going back to Anna's example with that new headphone jack, just think about it. If you had to go acquire a new part and get it fit in, it just takes more time to do that. The more you can keep things the same, the more time you save on your schedule. At least for Space World. For Space World. But yeah, that's all I have for the technical description of spacesuits, Anna. That was awesome. Thank you. Shall we take a break? Yes, I need to get a drink. That sounds great. And my foot is falling asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is too. (laughs) So yeah, let's take that break. All right, we'll be right back. We're back from our break. We're back. Hannah, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's get into the history, Anna. I'm excited. Me too. I got some kombucha. Yum. I have a latte. We've got some tasty drinks. Let's do this. Oh, that sounds better. (laughs) Let's do this. All right. It's so funny. In high school, history was never my favorite subject by a long shot. Same. But I actually really like doing the history of these. Yeah. I think it's also because we're just excited about space. (laughs) So anything space related is fun. Yeah. On that note, I watched Hamilton on Disney Plus, and it was actually very good. Ooh, I'll have to check it out. I know. It was very good. 
All right. History of spacesuits. When I first started doing this, I think Hannah and I both knew, like, this could get really long. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to jump directly to the history of spacesuits. And then when I was doing that, I realized you cannot, you just cannot do the history of spacesuits without talking about aviation flight suits. So we're going to do a very brief history of aviation flight suits. Everybody buckle in. Let's get this moving. Woo. The first airplanes had open, unheated cockpits, which sounds like a bummer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which immediately led to the need for eye protection. You can't, I don't think you could stick your head out the car window with eye protection. This is like this, but times a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) the clear solution was goggles, which is where you see those old school flight goggles coming from. And they're actually very similar to the ones that are in our logo. That's right. It also required warm clothing and a lot of pockets with closures to ensure your items just did not fly everywhere in flight. This makes complete sense to me, but I never thought about it. Yeah. And you have to think about all the little details. And oh, yeah. that's really interesting to read about. It's like all of this was had to be thought of. Yeah, because if you were just in an open air cockpit, you needed to make sure your stuff was secured. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of pockets. Leather quickly became the material of choice. It was warm, durable, offered protection against any flying debris. So that could include insects, oil thrown off by the aircraft motor, etc. Once enclosed and heated cockpits were developed, many pilots did not require special flight suits. A lot of people who fly just hobby planes don't wear flight suits. They don't need them. However, fighter pilots still required them. They required a uniform that worked in the tight confines of the standard fighter plane cockpit. Those are really snug. They want them to be small. They want them to be aerodynamic. They need suits that will work in those conditions. The first flight suits for fighter pilots are commonly made from wool or tight weave cotton, which offered protection from the wind and some fire protection. The need for some level of fire protection became very clear, especially during World War II. In case you don't remember, don't worry. It's okay. I won't judge you. Hannah won't judge you. (laughs) World War II took place from 1939 to 1945. Fire protective flight suits... Helmets, goggles, masks, gloves, and footwear were designed and used. However, it was not until the development of something called Nomex that truly flame-retardant suits were developed. In the early 1960s, Nomex was invented by a company called DuPont, which is, I'm pretty sure most people know DuPont by now. Mm -hmm. It is a flame-resistant textile comprised of a synthetic aromatic polyamide polymer. Oof. Ooh, those are a lot of words. I know. Also around this time, flight suits changed from predominantly two pieces, so jacket and pants. I always think of it, if you watch old movies, the pilots are wearing these leather bomber jackets and pants, and they're normally brown. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about that, too. I'm, like, thinking about Jurassic Park for some reason. I don't know if there's actually a scene in Jurassic Park, but I can envision it where the pilot looks like that. (laughs) You see these guys in prop planes, they're wearing these two-piece outfits. From around this time, they changed from predominantly two pieces to the one-piece version that is commonly seen today. So think Top Gun. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. They were styled more like a jumpsuit because it made it easier to put over clothing. But hard to go up to the bathroom in. (laughs) That's for certain, but I'm pretty sure they had other concerns. (laughs) But yes, it would be more difficult to use the bathroom. Technological advances in jet flight came the need for G-suits. So a specific kind of flight suit which protects the pilot from physical stress of G-forces by compressing the body to keep blood from pooling in the legs. Essentially, if you're experiencing a lot of acceleration, you'll be experiencing G-forces. That can actually cause you to pass out. Yeah. And so to prevent that and make sure the pilots can experience higher G-levels without passing out, it compresses your legs and it prevents your blood from pooling there and it prevents you from passing out. They also are trained to do a whole bunch of different exercises and different things to keep them from passing out. 
That's right. If you're interested in that, you should look it up. It's actually pretty cool. Now that you know a bit about flight suits, let's go back to spacesuits. Your abridged aviation history of flight suits is now over. We're into spacesuits. I loved it. It was interesting. I thought so too. You really can't talk about spacesuits without flight suits, and that will become clear very shortly. Right. Gaps of your understanding are going to get filled because of this history that Anna just provided about flight suits. Exactly. When you have people in space, you need spacesuits. You need something to protect the astronaut in case of a sudden depressurization of the cabin of the spacecraft in space. Hannah went into that significantly more than I will. The natural beginning of spacesuits would be the first human spaceflight. And so, on April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space on Vostok 1. He was wearing the first spacesuit, the SK-1. We actually have an episode about Yuri. That's right. If you're curious, you can check it out. And then the first woman in space, who was also a Russian cosmonaut, named Valentina. Yes, check it out. It's a fun episode. It is. All right, I meant to look up the pronunciation of this, but I'm going to do that right now. Go for it. Okay, I have no idea. Google can't help me either. So the SK-1 stands for Skafander Kozmicheskaya. Yeah, I don't know. That's a lot of letters. I couldn't help you. Oh, I know. All right, I'm going to YouTube it. Let's do it. We're going to YouTube it and see what we get. There's nothing that even comes up. <laughs> Did somebody tell me how you say this? Maybe if I do the two separate words. I think you could just do your best guess, Anna. SK stands for Gafander Kozmicheskaya. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sure that was terrible. We're trying your best. I was trying my best. Thank you. So that would be the SK. It's a direct translation and meaning diving suit for space. I just thought that was interesting that they're just saying it's like a wetsuit, but for space, which is exactly what it is. Yeah, actually, though, that's a really fun way to look at it. Right? I thought so, too. The SK-1 was designed specifically for Gagarin. It had an inner pressure lining that contained connectors for life support and communication hoses. The outer shell, or oversuit, was a bright orange nylon shell. It had a mirror sewn into the sleeve to actually help him locate hard-to-see switches or gauges, which I thought was really cool. Oh, yeah. That's actually a neat human factors. There's actually lots and lots of material on just human factors concepts for spacesuits and spacecraft. And something as simple as this will help someone in a time-sensitive environment so much. Yeah, exactly. We'll go into that a little bit more in a second. The visored helmet was not detachable from the suit. That's a bummer. I'm sure this was to maintain a seal. I'm pretty sure they had oxygen pumped in through the suit. By having the helmet come off, there was a chance that could leak. So to just make sure that never happened, it was one piece. But I'm sure it got really stuffy in there. Oh, yeah. Interestingly enough, part of the reason why the suits were orange, the collar on the suit was inflatable. I read this was used in case of a water landing. Essentially, if something went wrong with the Vostok capsules, at a certain point, the astronauts would be ejected out. Oh, whoa. Yeah. They would just eject them out into the water. Because the Vostok capsule did have a water landing. It had a splashdown landing, but you would be in the capsule, so you wouldn't need a life jacket. I'm pretty sure what they mean is that the collar inflated in case they got ejected from the capsule and landed in the ocean. It would inflate and kind of serve as a life jacket. So that's, I think, also part of the reason why they were bright orange. It's so that they could find them in the water. Yeah, right. I was just thinking that. Like, it has to be a way to just identify them. Exactly. The suit also had gloves with leather palms, leather Boots? Oh, I wrote books. I was like, what? <laughs> leather boots and a leather-covered radio headset. It was manufactured by a company named NPP Zvezda. 
and was used for Vostok missions 1 through 5. That was 1961 to 1963. Actually, interestingly enough, a second version of the SK-1, aptly named the SK-2, was designed for Valentina Tereshkova, the first female cosmonaut and the first woman in space, period. From my research, it was exactly the same, except they changed the fit slightly. They didn't take Yuri's and update it, right? It was a completely separate suit. It was a completely separate suit, except for the fact that it was the same. They made a copy of it. It did everything the same, except it was for a woman, so they changed the fit a little bit, and then they called it the SK-2. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. This brings us over to the U.S. with Project Mercury. Project Mercury started in 1958 and was the first U.S. spaceflight program. One of the first needs for the program was a spacesuit. Instead of starting from scratch, Mercury looked at military flight suits that were in use at the time and decided to adapt the Navy's Mark... What is IV? Is that for? Mark IV suit, yeah. Thank you. I'm so bad at that. Oh, you're fine. I get confused sometimes, too. The Navy's Mark IV suit. Work smarter, not harder. This is why I think it was so important to talk about aviation suits. They did not start over. They just used an existing flight suit. Mercury did not use the suit as is, though. They instead made several modifications. The breathing system was modified from an open-loop system to a closed-loop system. Very quick, very basic. Open-loop means the output does not affect the input. Closed-loop means the input changes based on the output. Right. The dark gray nylon outer shell of the Mark IV did not provide the necessary thermal control. I'm guessing it wasn't warm enough. It was replaced with a version made of this aluminum-coated nylon. Again, like Hannah mentioned, this provided the same effect as an emergency blanket. Another plus for emergency blankets. Heck yeah. I even wrote in my notes. I was like, also, those are really cheap and awesome to have. (laughs) Right? Perfect. The black leather safety boots of the Mark IV were replaced with an aluminum-coated version for the same reasons. The fit was refined and made more snug. The gloves were actually made special. This is really cool. All the fingers were curved to allow the astronauts to grasp the controls. However, the middle finger on each glove was straight so that they could push buttons. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I thought it was cool too. I was hoping to find out how much the suits weighed just because I was curious, but I didn't have any luck. What I did find was that each astronaut had three pressure suits. One for training, one for flight, and a backup. Together, all three suits cost $20,000 which would be $170,000 today. Wow. I know. That's a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. They were individually tailored to each astronaut. And just as a fun fact, no Mercury pressure suit ever failed during launch. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. After the Mercury launch named MR3, this is also called Freedom 7, brought the first U.S. astronaut, Alan Shepard, to space on May 5th, 1961, a couple modifications were made to the suit, mostly for comfort. In total, six astronauts wore the suit before its retirement. All right, we're through Mercury. After Mercury came Gemini. And with Gemini came a new spacesuit. Sweet. Right? I know. Exciting stuff. The Gemini spacesuit was based off of the United States Air Force X-15 flight suit. Again, this is why I talked about flight suits. Aviation flight suits, they come up a lot. There were three versions made, the G3C, the G4C, and the G5C. I have no idea what the G1C and the G2C were. (laughs) I'm guessing they must have been prototypes that didn't work out. Yeah, I can see that. They all consisted of six layers of nylon and Nomex. Remember Nomex? We talked about that earlier. This was brand new at this point. This is why it was not used earlier. The Gemini suits were designed to be more flexible when pressurized than their Mercury counterparts and also significantly more comfortable. 
that could be hooked up to a portable air conditioner. Whoa. So I bet that had to be nice. Yeah. I know. These suits were designed to keep heat in it because when you're in space, it's really cold. But I imagine when it wasn't cold, they were really hot. <laughs> yeah. And then instead of taking off the whole entire thing, it's probably nice to just hook it up to an air conditioner and cool down. Oh, yeah. The G4C was identical to the G3C, but it came in a pilot version and a commander version. The pilot's version incorporated the boots as part of the suit and added a removable sun visor that clipped onto the helmet. These suits weigh between 16 and 34 pounds. I don't know why there's such variation. I'm wondering if it's dependent on the height and build of the astronaut. Yeah, that could be, because the earlier spacesuits were more so customized to the specific astronauts, as opposed to the later spacesuits where there were just categories of sizes. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that all of these were still being customized. Yeah. The second version of the suit was the G4C, and it was designed for NASA's first spacewalks. It used the G3C as the base. It added a hose attaching the astronaut to the spacecraft, which supplied them with oxygen. The suit was designed to provide 30 minutes of backup life support in case of a problem, and the heaviest version weighed 34 pounds. Interestingly enough, Hannah kind of hinted at this earlier, but the Gemini missions also established the standard for astronauts to remove their pressure suits in non-critical portions of the mission for comfort. If you watch the Crew Dragon launch, you actually would see that Bob and Doug did this. They started out in their SpaceX suits, which we may or may not talk about. No spoilers. When they were no longer in a critical launch phase, they actually changed out of the suits into, I think it was a polo and cargo pants or khakis for comfort. That's right. And then Bob and Doug are the astronauts for the Crew Dragon launch. All right. So now we're going to jump to Apollo. The Apollo spacesuit program was split into three parts. One for Block 1, which was early missions, which did not consist of any EVAs. One for Block 2, for the early EVA missions. And finally, Block 3, for later, longer duration missions. The major changes was that the spacesuit needed to survive the conditions on the moon. Apollo program is what brought astronauts to the moon. Hannah talked about this a little bit, but it needed a shield to protect the astronauts from fine moon regolith. It needed protection against large temperature swings from sun to shade. Hannah mentioned this. It can be 250 degrees Fahrenheit to negative 250 degrees Fahrenheit, really depending on where you are. It needed the flexibility to move around, to install gear, bend over to pick up things. They were really bulky. They needed to maintain pressure from the vacuum, and they could be really tricky to bend over in. Exactly. Yeah, because they're so pressurized that when you're an astronaut and you're trying to bend your leg or bend over, this pressure of the suit is going to try to pull you back to just kind of an upright position. Yeah. And it's resistive and it's difficult to move in. But you need that pressure because space is a vacuum. Exactly. And then the gloves, if you've ever, if you ski or snowboard or just, I don't know, appreciate winter, if you wear heavy gloves, they're really tricky even to just hold your ski poles. That's right. Imagine that, but times 100 and on the moon. (laughs) And even ski boots, like the boots that you wear to lock into your skis, those are also restrictive. So imagine also having restrictive boots on the moon. Yeah, it gets really tricky to navigate, which is why as we talk more about future development and what's currently going on, there's a lot of push for making them more comfortable and more mobile. Exactly. The suits also needed to have the ability to supply the astronauts with life support for four hours away from the spacecraft. That's why Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were able to walk all around the moon because they had this life support. That's right. The suit used for Apollo 11 was called the A7L. And the suit consisted of a one-piece suit made of five layers of fabric. I think there's 21 layers in total. I just think five layers of them were fabric. 
The joints were made of synthetic and natural rubber to allow for movement. Quick disconnects were added at the wrists and the neck for the gloves and now the famous fishbowl helmets to be attached. They're just those big round things when you think of space helmets. They call them fishbowl helmets because they look like fishbowls. <laughs> the resulting suit weighed 200 pounds total. But keep in mind, Hannah talked about this, and gravity on the moon is one-sixth of that on Earth. That's right. So 200 divided by six is 33 pounds. That's still a lot. I wouldn't want my clothes to weigh 33 pounds, but it's a lot better than 200. Yeah. Just imagine, like, just lifting 20 pounds at the gym. That's difficult, and you're just lifting it for a short period of time. Now imagine carrying that weight all around for a couple hours. That would be exhausting. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we're going to stop here. This will be the end of part one. And don't worry if you're like, what about the space shuttle? You have to tune into part two. That's right. Anna, that history was fascinating. Thanks for talking about it. Thank you. I had a lot of fun researching it. I definitely had to pull myself back in a few times because there are a lot of interesting places to go, but it could have gotten really long. Oh my gosh, so many potential rabbit holes. That's how I felt too with the research for this episode. There's just so many rabbit holes. There's so much information out there. Oh yeah. I'm excited to do part two. Yeah, me too. Till then, are you ready to close this one out? Yeah, let's do it. Anna, do you want to share where people can find us? Yeah, so you can check us out on Instagram at But It Is Rocket Science. You can go to our website, But It Is Rocket Science.com. If you're curious, you want to talk to us, if you want to ask us a question, give us an opinion about something, just say hi, drop us a line. There's a contact us form. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on Twitter at But It Is RS. And then you can find our podcast on all the popular podcast streaming services. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict. And then if you really want to make our day, leave us a review on iTunes. It would really help us out. Yes, please do. Excellent, Anna. All right, should we dive into our sources? Yeah. Do you want to go first? Sure. I started the episode out with referencing the book Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo by Nicholas de Monchal. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'll have that linked in the sources. Some websites that I used include How Stuff Works, NASA.gov, used Wikipedia's uh, launching point. I also used astronautics.com. There's another website called Specialty Fabrics Review, where I looked up information about developing NASA's next generation of spacesuits. And then Business Insider for the costs that I reviewed earlier in my section. Awesome. Thanks. How about you? Oh, man. They go on for a while because every spacesuit had a different source. <laughs> so I used wikipedia.org. I just used Wikipedia for the quick history of flight suits. And then I found this cool website called explainthatstuff.com. And it talked all about Nomex. I used the Wikipedia page about Yuri Gagarin and the Wikipedia page about the SK-1 spacesuit. I also found this really cool article from the Air and Space Museum that talked all about the space race and different spacesuits. I used Wikipedia articles for the Mercury spacesuit. And then I used, oh, I was trying to figure out, I used this website to figure out what the inflation rate between 1960 and 2020 was. <laughs> <laughs> and then I used NASA.gov. Essentially, it talked all about the Gemini program and the Gemini spacesuit. I used Wikipedia well for the Gemini spacesuit. And I used a Wikipedia page for the Apollo Skylab spacesuit. A lot of Wikipedia this time around. Fabulous. That's all I had. Wonderful. All right. Shall we close it out for our space cadets? Let's do it. My favorite part. Until next time, space cadets. 
T minus three, two, one, liftoff. Perfect. Stopping the